0: Welcome to the Lamas podcast. Kalosirta the Lamas
1: podcast. Why name? Lai dog. Lamas worker. Il benvenuti al podcast di Lamas. Lamas podcast par aapno swagat chhe. Welcome to the Lamas podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lamas podcast where we chat about all things pregnancy, childbirth, and the postpartum experience. Lamaze International is a global organization committed to supporting families from pregnancy to parenthood. And this podcast is an extension of our passion, which has been educating and journeying families for over 60 years. Lamaze is more than just the breathing, as you probably know, and today's podcast will explore and help, hopefully help educate you in how to advocate for healthy pregnancy, safe birth, and early parenting through evidence-based education. So let's get started. My name is Mindy Cochrane and I am the host for today's podcast episode. I've been a Lamaze educator since 2011 in the United States, and I taught in the UK for a few years before that. It really was my lack of knowledge, my quest for knowledge that brought me into the the industry. Uh, And I am really excited about uh, today's topic. With me today is Dr. Maurice Drusen and he is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Stanford University School of Medicine here in California in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Dr. Drusen completed his medical school training at the University of Waterstrand in Joburg, South Africa and did his residency at the University of Colorado Medical Center. Have I got that right?
0: Correct.
1: Good. Uh, He did his fellowship in maternal fetal medicine at the University of Southern California, near and dear to our hearts here. And he was appointed chief of the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine and professor of OBGYN at Cornell um, in the uh, 80s and 90s for 11 years there. In 91, he was appointed professor of OBGYN and chief in the Division of Maternal fetal medicine and obstetrics at Stanford and the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. So really, his focus is in fetal assessment how, how's that baby doing and medical complications of pregnancy. And he has a whole lot of honors. I you know I could probably be here for another 20 minutes reading all of them. But I think importantly, he has served on the American College of OBGYN's Hypertension and Pregnancy Task Force. And he's also a member of the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative, which publishes toolkits on lots of various topics for uh, professionals, for doctors and midwives. So without further ado, I want to to uh, welcome you to the podcast today.
0: Thank you very much, Mindy. It's a pleasure to be here and thanks for the invitation.
1: Yeah, our pleasure. We feel quite uh, lucky to have you. So the topic today is big words, right? Hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And I find the topic fascinating. I keep coming upon more and more women who um, are affected by it. And in the literature I've been reading, I see uh, different numbers. Somewhere between 2 and 10% of pregnancies are complicated by it. And hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, from what I'm reading, are associated with increased risks for both the birthing parent and the baby. I mean, it's ironic because when I'm talking about how a contraction feels, in uh, my childbirth classes, I often, I don't know, describe it or compare it to the sensation one would feel when they're getting their blood pressure taken. But instead of around your arm, the blood pressure cuff is around your entire uh, uterus. So kicking off here, can I just ask you to tell us in general what is meant by those big words, hypertensive disorders in pregnancy?
0: Yes. Thank you, Mindy. So it, it, indeed, it is a common disease and the numbers that you quoted uh, show the range of the diseases, but uh, at probably around 10% of patients will have some type of hypertensive disorder of pregnancy. What we're referring to is a, is a group of clinical conditions, which includes uh, chronic hypertension, which are patients who have high blood pressure prior to becoming pregnant. So that's patients who have what is commonly called primary or essential hypertension. Some people call it benign hypertension. So these are patients who have high blood pressure uh, prior to being pregnant, have nothing to do with pregnancy, uh, who subsequently then become pregnant. The second group of, of uh, disorders are those that are pregnancy related. In other words, they do not occur in women who, do not, who are not pregnant, and they typically occur in the second half of pregnancy after 20 weeks of gestation. So The hypertensive disorders of pregnancy encompasses patients who have high blood pressure prior to pregnancy and then become pregnant, as well as a group of patients who develop a pregnancy specific disorder that occurs after 20 weeks of gestation. Now, just to be sure that we understand uh, the fact that these hypertensive disorders of pregnancy are defined because of the presence of high blood pressure. And if you look at the definitions of high blood pressure, it's pretty simple, but it it can be confusing. In pregnancy related blood pressure measurements, the diagnosis of gestational hypertension or pregnancy related is a 140 systolic or a 90 diastolic. So that's very different to essential hypertension, where a patient is before pregnancy, where depending on which definition is used by the practitioner, the levels of blood pressure may be lower. For example, the American Heart Association has just come out with new guidelines called prehypertension, where the 130 to 139 systolic and 80 to 89 diastolic is called type 1 or stage 1 hypertension. And these are patients who are not pregnant. Now, it turns out that we have not applied those criteria to the pregnant women because then we'd be increasing the diagnosis exponentially. So we have stayed with 140 systolic or 90 diastolic as our criteria for high blood pressure during pregnancy. And that is the the spectrum of disorders. Now, just one last thing I'd like to say is that even though hypertension is the single most important clinical feature of these disorders, the syndrome of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy, again, this is after 20 weeks of gestation, I'm not talking about chronic hypertension, really is a multi-system disorder, which means that all the organs of the body are affected. And what happens is when the placenta implants It is not a perfect implantation. The placenta therefore develops. It's not a perfectly formed placenta and it produces substances that affect all the blood vessels in our body. Now, it turns out that it affects the peripheral blood vessels, which we can measure by measuring your blood pressure. But what it does is it causes vascular reactivity. It causes the blood vessels to be very, what we call twitchy. So the blood vessels become tight. Therefore, you can measure high blood pressure. But because the blood vessels become a little tighter, blood flow to various organs decreases. And that is causes the clinical syndrome of preeclampsia or hypertensive disorders. So first the blood pressure goes up, but then you have decreased blood flow to the kidneys and you can get protein in the urine. You can get decreased blood flow to the the placenta itself is not working as well. So there's decreased blood flow to the developing fetus so the baby doesn't grow as well. You can have decreased blood flow to the blood vessels to the brain. It can cause a swelling of the brain called cerebral edema, which can end up being a seizure. Even though high blood pressure is the single most important clinical diagnostic feature, it is just a an end organ response to a multi-system disorder. And that is why it's such a dangerous disease. It's not just the blood pressure, it's all of the other organs that are affected. And so that
1: makes complete sense because you, you know, we often hear of all the symptoms, but now you've just, I think, beautifully explained why those symptoms occur. Because it's not just about blood, blood vessels in the heart, it's about how it affects everything in the, in the system and impacts the placenta. Is that right?
0: That is correct. uh, It infects the whole, all the blood vessels in the body. Uh, There seems to be some selectivity. For example, the kidneys seem to be particularly vulnerable and then the liver and the brain are next in line. But that's why we typically hear about hypertension and proteinuria or protein in the urine, because typically the kidneys are the first major organ to be impacted by by this disease. Gotcha.
1: So in a normal uncomplicated pregnancy, does the blood pressure tend to be the same in all three trimesters?
0: No. So when a patient gets pregnant, a normal pregnancy, the blood pressure will drop in the second trimester. It will go down a little bit. And the reason is that while this placenta is developing in a normal pregnancy, there are substances that cause the blood vessels to dilate. So Preeclampsia or hypertensive disorders of pregnancy cause the blood vessels to constrict therefore become smaller less blood flow but normally a normal placenta produces substances that cause blood vessels to dilate or open up because remember you're taking a microscopic egg that implants in the uterus starts developing a placenta and 9 months after that you have a little person So you're going from a microscopic egg to an actual person in nine months. That's a phenomenal rate of growth, absolutely phenomenal rate of growth. And you need massive amounts of blood pouring into the placenta to allow this development to occur. So the normal pregnancy, the blood vessels dilate or become a little wider, therefore allowing blood to continually flow through the placenta and therefore to the developing fetus. In preeclampsia, unfortunately, that blood flow is diminished, and therefore that will lead to decreased blood flow to vital organs, to the placenta, and give us the clinical syndrome of preeclampsia.
1: So when someone is suffering from hypertension, is it ever the case where their blood pressure might get a little better in the second trimester?
0: If a patient has chronic hypertension, uh, yes, their blood pressure may drop in the second trimester, but patients with chronic hypertension, remember, already have twitchy vessels. They already have decreased caliber of their vessels, and that's why patients with chronic hypertension will develop, ultimately can develop kidney disease because there's decreased blood flow in their kidneys, and that's obviously one of the first organs that gets uh, affected, but it can affect the heart as well, the brain. They can develop stroke, so Patients with chronic hypertension, just by the way, are one of the highest risk groups for when they do become pregnant to develop on top of their chronic hypertension, the syndrome of preeclampsia because their blood vessels are already compromised. Their blood vessels already. And we don't know why exactly what causes chronic hypertension. We're not sure about it. We know it's related to things like obesity and diabetes and age And, you know, there's some genetic factors clearly, but they're already coming into the pregnancy with blood vessels that are already compromised. And therefore, they have a very high risk of developing what we call superimposed preeclampsia or the syndrome that I've just described on top of their chronic hypertension. So they're a very high risk group that needs very careful follow-up.
1: Right. I mean, you think these disorders have always been with us? um, Or are they- they are they more um, likely to occur in certain populations or countries?
0: Well, they've always been with us. They've been reported in antiquity. Uh, Actually, eclampsia comes from a Greek word for lightning, lightning strikes. Uh, It's it's really a a disease that's been around for a long time. It was only after somebody worked out a way of measuring blood pressure that we figured out that we can now detect it because what would happen is patients would come in and die with an eclamptic seizure, which is one of the leading causes of death uh, in the, you know, in the Middle Ages in the 17 and 1800s. So they've always been with us, um, but we now have been a- able to put a name to it by measuring certain parameters, as I've just mentioned.
1: Right. I think most of us know the symptoms. We we you know we know the drill, but can we go through a couple of these symptoms in a little bit more detail for women who may think that they're experiencing it? Um, I mean, high blood pressure, we can measure, um, and protein in the urine, we all pee in a cup, but what about headaches or visual disturbances? Can you expand on those a little bit?
0: Sure. So um, let me just go back for one second and say, uh, you talk about the, 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 the classification so that then we can talk about these symptoms, which can put that into perspective, because- okay. One of the most important things we can do is for our patients to recognize that they have a problem, and then for the healthcare providers to appropriately classify their disease, so that we can do the appropriate intervention. So it's really a very important fact that the patients themselves are going to often tell us about the disease and we just need to put it into perspective. One of the problems is that many normal pregnancy findings overlap with these uh, symptoms. So for example, headache. Headache is very common in pregnancy. but There are many patients who have migraine headaches who will come in and say, I've got a severe headache, and then you have to sort out, is this really just the migraine, or is this just a, 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 any old headache, or is this a symptom of cerebral edema or swelling of the brain? Right. They will present, may present with headache, but obviously cerebral edema is going to kill you. So you've got to be very thoughtful about this. Uh, swelling, for example, uh, edema or excessive fluid, particularly around the ankles, called dependent edema, used to be a criterion for preeclampsia. So you, the, the classic triad in the past was high blood pressure, protein in the urine, and edema.
1: Right,
0: swelling. The edema is, again, because of the damage to the blood vessels, which I've mentioned to you before, because of the abnormal placenta, the integrity of the blood vessels is compromised and fluid leaks from inside the blood vessels to outside the blood vessels into the tissue around the blood vessels, and then you get swelling called edema. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: The reason that we've removed edema as a criterion for preeclampsia is that so many pregnant women who don't have preeclampsia get edema. So you can see the problem here with the overlap. Yes. The, the headache is one of the most common presentations of severe disease. And, but unfortunately, it's, again, one of the more common findings in a normal pregnancy. So, and the edema, as we, we've mentioned to you before. Other things like abdominal pain, so for example, in a severe form of the disease called HELP syndrome, where the liver is involved and the liver is swelling, the patients will complain of severe abdominal pain. It's often the right side. Well, the gallbladder is on the right side. It's more in the center, but it's more towards the right. Gallstones are common in pregnancy, so they're often misdiagnosed as having gallbladder because they've got pain, they've got nausea, they may be vomiting, classic presentation of an acute attack of gallbladder disease, cholecystitis, we call it. Again, there's this overlap, but it may be, in fact, the severe form of preeclampsia. So uh, again, so the common presentations of headache, edema, abdominal pain, uh, it, it can be very confusing. And even though It sounds simple to make the diagnosis and in retrospect, when patients have had a severe outcome, everybody says, oh, well, we missed it. Going forward prospectively, seeing a patient in your office or in the clinic is not as easy as it sounds. That's why we need to understand the definitions and and try and sort this out. And there's some very simple ways that you can detect the vast majority of patients who are actually having a problem versus just normal pregnancy findings. So so I I was just going to to say that the, the classification we should keep very simple, which is you have chronic hypertension, which means you have high blood pressure prior to pregnancy or prior to 20 weeks of gestation. You have what's called gestational hypertension. That applies to a 140 systolic or 90 diastolic after 20 weeks right. that's called gestational hypertension if you have gestational hypertension and you add proteinuria or protein in the urine and there's a certain measurement that's 300 milligrams in 24 hours or a protein creatinine ratio of 0.3 that's how you measure abnormal amounts of protein in the urine so gestational hypertension plus proteinuria equals pre-eclampsia
1: Gotcha. Okay. So it gets more severe. So Correct. 140 over 90 on its own without any protein in the urine is not as severe as uh, kidneys releasing protein.
0: Now, now, well. 140, one, so 140 or 90 plus proteinuria, you now have preeclampsia.
1: I see. Gotcha. Which
0: is now the syndrome. And there's we used to call it mild, but we have now removed that term mild because once you've developed hypertension and proteinuria, you have preeclampsia. The the term mild makes it seem like it's not serious, but in fact, it is serious because that can then progress to what we call severe features, which can then progress to eclampsia, which is seizures. So there is a spectrum of severity, but we don't want to start with what we call mild now. We just say preeclampsia without severe features, then preeclampsia with severe features, and then eclampsia and they usually progress in that sort of linear fashion, but not always. Right. Patients can sometimes walk in with preeclampsia with severe features.
1: What about um, shortness of breath?
0: Well, shortness of breath, again, very common in pregnancy. Um, patients have a sensation of shortness of breath because in fact, they are breathing at a faster rate because of the hormones. And in fact, they need to bring in more oxygen to feed the developing fetus and through the placenta. So that's a little bit of a tricky one, but Mm -hmm. we we always worry about patients who complain of it because most patients are are compensating. And so they won't be aware of being too short of breath. Now, sometimes shortness of breath is just from deconditioning, right? Patients are not exercising. They've now pregnant. They're now carrying all of this extra weight. They're carrying this fetus. Uh, you know, everything's changing in their body. And so they may become a little bit more aware of it. But if a patient's complaining of shortness of breath, we need to look at all the other causes of potential shortness of breath, starting with a cardiac system. You know, is this somebody who's going into cardiac failure, which right. is one of the forms of preeclampsia, pulmonary edema or cardiac failure is one of the other major end organs that can be involved. Not all that commonly, but can be. And you can develop cardiac problems with preeclampsia.
1: A lot of people think, well, I think a lot of people think that after the baby's delivered, this all goes away. And I guess a lot of times it does. But can you talk a little bit about what to look out for after you've had the baby?
0: I'm glad you brought that up because that is a really critical uh, fact. We have taught for many, many years. I was taught as a medical student and I've been for many years, we teach that the only cure for preeclampsia is delivery. You deliver the baby and the placenta. And remember the placenta has been producing all these noxious substances, which is messing up your blood vessels. So the best way to take care of it is to get rid of it, right? So you deliver, you have to deliver the baby and deliver the, the placenta. However, remember what I said, this is a endothelial cell disorder. It affects all the blood vessels of the body. So these cells lining the blood vessels have been damaged by the substances released by the abnormal placenta. It is amazing. Sometimes you deliver the baby, you deliver the placenta and within minutes, the patient's blood pressure gets better. Her symptoms improve. I mean, oftentimes it's that dramatic because Mm -hmm. you've taken away the source of the problem. However, those cells need to, to heal those cells need to get better. Your blood vessels need to, those cells need to regenerate because they've been severely damaged. They need to come back again and they need to resume their normal function of making blood vessels constrict and dilate according to your needs. So your blood vessels are continually doing this. We don't even know that it's doing it, right? You go for a walk your blood vessels are going to constrict around your bowel so that it sends more blood to your legs and your heart so that you can take your walk without falling over because your heart's not working anymore. So we do this all the time, but those blood vessels have been damaged and they take time to recover. And most of the time the the recovery will take, will start right away after delivery, but it may take actually up to six weeks. Typically It takes about a week for them to recover, but while they're recovering, and this is sort of very important that 72 hours, about three days after delivery, you will often have a surge of blood pressure because as these cells are recovering, they may continue to produce these substances that cause the blood vessels to tighten up. So we we know that after delivery, there's a nice response to delivery, but because these blood vessels are not totally recovered yet, there may be another surge of hypertension at about 72 hours.
1: Right. So it's a three-day mark with a newborn is a very interesting day anyway, because that's yes. the day maybe milk is flooding the breast and um, they're getting engorged and they're starting to understand what sleep deprivation is like and yes. they may have other symptoms. And am I right in thinking that um, although the American uh, College of OBGYN is now suggesting we see women at the three-week mark. Is it true that most women aren't seen till roughly the six-week mark after?
0: Well, yeah. So it, the American College, if if you look at the hypertension pregnancy guidelines from American College and CMQCC, the first week postpartum is the, the critical time for severe disease and severe outcomes. Right. So that three-day mark, that 72-hour mark, and then going out to about seven days. So it's recommended now that if the patient is in the hospital at 72 hours, so if they've had a cesarean, they still be there, that careful attention be paid to their blood pressure and their other symptoms at that sort of 72-hour period. But they also need to be somehow evaluated at about seven days. Right. Because the first week postpartum is where actually, if you look at, Maternal mortality, maternal deaths from this disease, close to a half of them occur postpartum in the first week.
1: That's really interesting, I think it's really something very valuable for everyone out there to understand yeah. that uh, these, you know, this can carry on.
0: And the problem has been that we've always thought that uh, delivery is is the cure. Well, the, the the truth is that delivery is the most important therapeutic intervention towards cure but it takes about a week for the cure to be complete.
1: Gotcha. And,
0: I, now there is, and there are some residuals. There are some patients whose cells have been so damaged that, it, that it's going to take them two to six weeks to totally get better. But that's usually un, a, a sort of rarer event. But what we've tried to emphasize from the time of the American College hypertension pregnancy announced with CMQCC is that postpartum period is a critical time. And we actually have on our CMQCC toolkit, we had a we have a whole section on the emergency department because that's where many of our postpartum patients turn up, arrive. Right. And the emergency room doctors aren't always aware of the fact that they think, well, you delivered, so you cured. So we have a, a beautifully written chapter in CMQCC by... One of our um, emergency room members of the task force, is has got a little pictogram that when a patient arrives in the emergency room, there's a stop sign and says, stop, are you pregnant or have you recently been pregnant? That is such a key issue because if the answer is, I'm no longer pregnant, but I, yeah, I just delivered that patient who's got symptoms, they go to the front of the line because they may have preeclampsia, postpartum preeclampsia, this entity was not well recognized and unfortunately um, has led to a lot of problems in the postpartum period. So we are emphasizing that and we want our patients to be aware. And as you know, you just showed some pictograms from the preeclampsia foundation, for example, which says if you have any of these symptoms, (laughs) call your doctor or go to the emergency room and the emergency room need to be educated to call the obstetrical service so that we can implement treatment as needed
1: i'll have to speak to the cmqcc and see if that stop sign is potentially something that we can uh that Lamas educators can use um or hand out or something along or have access to or send uh pregnant women to um to see those uh symptoms because i really like that stop sign it's really straightforward it's really easy to understand um thank you for that
0: it's in the it's in the appendix of mm-hmm. CMCC, and I don't think that there's a problem using it. But also, the Preclampsia Foundation has got some very nice pictograms of the very simple, straightforward. That says if you have these symptoms, right. call your doctor. Because what what we used to see, and we've seen in our review of maternal mortalities, is patient has this crushing headache at four days. They call they call up and. They told, well, well, a headache is common in pregnancy.
1: Mm-hmm. A Headache
0: is common, and they don't, you know, they don't get into the whole thing. And say, well, take some Tylenol and call us back, and then the patient has a seizure at home or has a problem. So right. I think we need to emphasise again that yes, delivery is the most important intervention towards cure, but the cure may take up to a, a week for you to be completely better from a clinical symptom perspective.
1: Now, talking about delivery being part of the cure, um, is it, how common is it for women uh, showing these symptoms to be induced early? Uh, what is considered early? Or you know, when is cesarean section a go-to instead of induction?
0: A very good question. So again, let's just go back to our definitions. So gestational hypertension, remember, is a 140 or 90 or greater after 20 weeks of gestation. If the patient never develops proteinuria or major end-organ involvement, which is liver, lungs, brain, kidneys, they carry a diagnosis of gestational hypertension through the end to the end. However, we know that maybe 40% of those patients will develop preeclampsia at some point. Okay, so that's gestational hypertension. If the patient has preeclampsia, which is gestational hypertension plus proteinuria, they have to be, so let me go back. So gestational hypertension, the recommendation is to be delivered at 37 weeks.
1: Gotcha. I'll
0: I'll tell you why in a minute. If you have preeclampsia, which is hypertension plus proteinuria without severe features, which I'll talk about in a minute, 37 weeks. If you have hypertension plus proteinuria, or if you have hypertension with major end organ involvement, again, all those major organs I've mentioned, which are in laboratory studies, we look at low platelets, we look at liver enzymes being increased, we look at creatinine, which is a measure of kidney function being increased. We talk about severe headache or visual disturbance. If you have any of those, we now call it preeclampsia with severe features, which means that you now have clinically significant major end organ involvement. If you just had hypertension and proteinuria, all the other organs of your body are affected, but they're not clinically significant yet. And they may never become clinically significant. Okay. But if you have any of those end organ involvements, we now call it preeclampsia with severe features. And one other thing, one other high, if you have high blood pressure that is significantly high, which is a 160 systolic or a 110 diastolic or greater, you now have what's called severe gestational hypertension, and now you have what's called preeclampsia with severe features. Those patients have to be delivered at 34 weeks.
1: Wow. Okay. Very early. Yes.
0: Now, why do we have to deliver these people early? And there's been a lot of debate about it. So let's go to gestational hypertension or preeclampsia without severe features at 37 weeks. There's a classic study from Europe called the HyperTAT study, H-Y-P-I-T-A-T, which uh, shows you that if you take two groups of patients with either gestational hypertension or preeclampsia without severe features, at 37 weeks, and you induce one set and randomize trial, obviously, and the other group, you do what's called expectant management, Mm -hmm. which means you don't induce them, you just wait. 40% of the group with expectant management develop severe hypertension, severe range blood pressures, and therefore are at risk for the sequelae of severe hypertension, 160 or 110 or greater. What is the sequelae? That is the single most important risk factor towards stroke. Gotcha. And hemorrhagic stroke, stroke with bleeding in the brain, is the leading cause, 80% of patients who die from this disease. And I'm, I don't like to bring up the mortality issue, but I think we need to face this and recognize that is why we don't, we want to deliver people before they develop these range, severe range blood pressures that can cause mortality, or even if there's no mortality, if the patient has a stroke with significant neurologic sequelae, we're talking about young women with families. Mm-hmm. We're talking about debilitating stroke. We're talking about, a you know, a life, a life altering intervention. Perfect. So, it's the seriousness of what we can expect. And so you could say, well, 60% of those patients aren't going to develop severe range blood pressures, only 40%. Well, that you can play those odds and you can follow them closely, but that's where the recommendation comes down at 37 weeks. I see. Now, why, why do we deliver preeclampsia with severe features at 34 weeks? Well, those patients, have a, some people have called it a different disease. So some some people have recommended that patients who develop severe preclampsia, preclampsia with severe features at 34 weeks or less, we should call it a different separate disease because it's so devastating. The, what this shows you is that the end organ involvement is very, very extensive. Right. Now they have severe range blood pressures, their babies are often smaller, the liver is involved, the, the brain is involved. Uh, the kidneys are involved. If you don't deliver those patients, you increase the risk of maternal and neonatal or, or uh, fetal mortality. Mm-hmm. And one of the consequences of these severe range blood pressures is what's called show placentae, where the placenta separates. And we tend to forget about that. But if you take a combination of maternal stroke and placental separation, abruptia placentae, which which obviously if it's extensive enough, the baby will die because it's deprived of its, of its uh, nutrient supply and oxygen supply. And this can happen in an instant, just like this. Uh, the risk is too great. Right. And that's why we take the extreme step of delivering somebody at 34 weeks. Now, those patients, unfortunately, if you look at the maternal mortality statistics, more than half of the patients who die are the patients who develop preeclampsia at less than 34 weeks. So this is a very serious illness.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and there's no other specialty where you would say, well, 40%, there's a 40% chance you can develop stroke and die where we wouldn't be saying, well, my God, let's, let's do something about it, right? Well, doing something about it in these cases is delivery. The less than 34 weeks and people can develop preeclampsia as early as 24 weeks.
1: Mm-hmm. We have
0: a, we have a very strict protocol that if a patient develops preeclampsia prior to 34 weeks, that we admit them to the hospital. We manage the blood pressure. We observe them and we try and buy some time for the baby right. to develop the, the average time that we can buy in general is seven to 10 days before something happens that makes us deliver them. Their blood pressure is out of control. There's a placental separation. Their kidneys start failing. They have a problem with the liver. But, you know, for a little, uh, for a baby at 24, 25 weeks, if they can get seven to 10 days or sometimes two weeks, the difference in outcome is dramatic. So we will take the chance of maternal morbidity under very close supervision in the hospital to buy time for the baby up to 34 weeks. But after 34 weeks in a new a modern nursery, 90% of those babies are going to not only survive but have normal neurologic outcomes because right. of the neonatal intensive care. So again, 37 weeks for patients with gestational hypertension or preclamps without severe features, 34-week delivery for patients with preeclampsia with severe features.
1: So I know this is simplifying things, but uh, my motto in class is if in doubt, get checked out. And it sounds like with this, uh, if in doubt, it's better the baby's out.
0: (laughs) I like, yeah, my my motto is if in doubt, get it out.
1: (laughs) It's easy to remember. Uh, Let me ask you, are there any steps Um, prenatally that women can do to reduce their chances of uh, high blood pressure during pregnancy or hypertensive problems during pregnancy?
0: Well, the answer is um, yes and no. Mostly it's no. I want us to give the message to our patients that this is not their fault.
1: Yes, correct.
0: And I know that many patients feel guilty. They always ask, what did I do wrong? What What didn't I do? What did I and my answer is there's nothing that you did or didn't do that caused this. We don't know what causes, what the cause of preeclampsia is. We just don't know what the actual trigger is. We know it's a, there's a lot that we know. The placenta, it's an inflammatory process. It's the selfie DNA that you're gonna ask me about later. There's all kinds of things that may trigger that, but we just don't know. We do know the following. If you have chronic hypertension, you're likely to develop preeclampsia. In terms of chronic hypertension, however, even if your blood pressure is totally well-controlled, which you should, it should be with chronic hypertension, it doesn't decrease the risk of you developing superimposed preeclampsia. So that's, that's the irony. Hmm. that Even if you take good care of your blood pressure, because we don't know what the trigger is to cause this new syndrome on top of your chronic hypertension, the best advice I would give patients is obviously if you have a chronic hypertension, control the hypertension because what you don't want to do is come into pregnancy with high blood pressure already, then develop the superimposed post preeclampsia that says they're going to push your blood pressure even higher and put you at risk of all these complications. So good control of blood pressure is a very good thing to do, but it won't protect you from developing preeclampsia. So and you have a high risk of developing it, so you need to have a high index of suspicion and call your doctor with any symptoms.
1: Yeah, that's. Re- I mean, it's really useful your comments because I a lot of people do think, "Why me? What did I do wrong?" And uh, exactly.
0: Exactly.
1: Um, what a, I mean, I was reading a theory about potentially low calcium potentially making yes. uh, increasing chances, and that uh, women need you know roughly a thousand milligrams of calcium a day, and maybe don't get that because the average prenatal only has like 150 milligrams do you have any comments on calcium intake
0: yes so calcium is very interesting the 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 average uh, pregnant woman requires about 1200 milligrams of calcium a day. 1200 okay and you know you i mean you can get it through your prenatal vitamins but you can get it through your diet you know there's lots of calcium rich foods there's there's dairy there, and you know obviously with the vegetarians and the vegans I mean that may be a challenge but you know there's green leafy vegetables. there's, there's lots of things that have calcium in them. So about a, a 1200 milligrams a day, there have been a number of pretty good studies done which show that actually uh, if patients have a 600 milligrams or less of calcium a day, calcium sub, calcium supplementation, will decrease the risk of preeclampsia. Most of these patients, however, are in the developing world where uh, chronic malnutrition and access to calcium-rich foods is limited. So uh, you can kind of look at the, and I I wanna be clear that I'm not using these terms in any way other than just to describe reality the developed world, which is what we consider like North America or yeah America, the Americas, North America, Europe, Australia, etc., versus the developing world, uh, which is the developing world. The level of nutrition is different. Yeah, in the developed world, Europe, Americas, so on, uh, most patients are going to have a normal calcium intake. Again. With some exceptions, vegans, vegetarians, there may be a problem. So, the goal should be about 1200 milligrams of calcium a day. Calcium supplementation, you can take more calcium, but if you take too much calcium, you can end up with some complications like kidney stones.
1: Right. The okay. Kidney
0: stones of calcium. So, the calcium story for prevention of preeclampsia is really confined to those patients. With a 600 milligram or less a day typically seen in the developing world okay the average okay. american diet should have enough calcium in it you would hope <laughs> you would hope. You know, you're right <laughs> yes so that's that the other the other thing you're know, talking about patients what can they do is to have a to eat a balanced diet yes with all the, the usual things that we know you know avoiding all of the fast foods and processed foods and sugars and all that stuff. So a good diet and exercise. It is amazing how much deconditioning we see with pregnant women. Uh, You know, we should recommend that everybody do 30 minutes of aerobic exercise every day. A brisk walk, take the dog, grab the hubby, the partner, pull him out, no matter what the weather is take a 30 minute walk every day and you'll feel much better and you'll you your condition will be better because labor is hard work right so you've got to be in the best shape you can be for that long haul of labor
1: yeah it is it is hard work on the body and that's why it's not called vacation yeah it's called now, labor but, for a reason
0: but the patients the, the patients that i see that that say you know i exercise every day I'm, I'm meticulous about my diet. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't all. And why did I get preeclampsia? And the answer is, I don't know. Yeah. But it's nothing that you did or didn't do and stop feeling guilty. Let's yep. just deal with the problem.
1: Yep. Could it, yeah. Could it be hereditary? Yeah.
0: There's no question that there is some genetics by the way.
1: Right. Um. In class the other week, I had a woman and I don't know her medical history, but she was being prescribed an aspirin every day. And this worried her because she was worried about uh, postpartum bleeding. Can you talk about the role of aspirin in uh, treating this disorder or it's used um, during pregnancy?
0: Yes. Thank you for asking. That's another very important answer to the question, what can we do? So baby aspirin, 81 milligrams a day has been shown to be an effective medication for prevention of recurrent preeclampsia. So patients who've had preeclampsia in one pregnancy are at about at least somewhere around 20 to 25% risk of developing in in the next pregnancy. And if you developed it early, say 34 weeks or less, or you develop the severe form of it, your recurrence risk goes up to maybe 50% because your blood vessels have been Compromise in some way, you're at risk for recurrent preeclampsia. And just parenthetically, patients who've, developed, who've had preeclampsia also are at risk for long-term cardiovascular disease, such as high blood pressure and cardiac disease, and often earlier than one would expect. So having preeclampsia sort of unmasks the potential for having some type of vascular disease later on in life. And so those patients who've had preeclampsia should be followed very closely by their primary care physician with attention being paid to weight, blood pressure control, uh, statins, you know, whatever it is, their their lipid profile, whatever it is, all the risk factors for a cardiovascular disease are enhanced by having had preeclampsia. Baby aspirin has been shown to decrease the risk of subsequent preeclampsia once you've had it In your first pregnancy, by anywhere from 15 to 30%. We used to say 30%, some of the newest studies say it's probably less, but whatever it is on a large scale, it's worth it. It's a very low risk intervention. Most patients can tolerate 81 milligrams very well, unless they have an aspirin allergy. And rarely it does cause some stomach upset Mm -hmm. um, and may cause some gastrointestinal bleeding, but it's very rare. It doesn't cross the placenta to any measurable amount. It probably does a little bit, but there's been no no effect ever noted on the fetus. So it's a perfectly safe medication. And the American College of OBGYN recommends starting it at 12 weeks once the placenta is implanted in patients at risk. And there's a long list of patients who are at risk. Previous preeclampsia is the highest risk, but there's lots of other things. Obesity, for example, is an indication. Poor pregnancy outcome is an indication. Uh, chronic hypertension, chronic kidney disease, lupus, antiphospholipid syndrome, any auto, any autoimmune disease are risk factors. And there's a table that just came out from the United States um, Preventative Task Force that lists all the risk factors for, for um baby aspirin. And in some populations, that's going to be, you know, 70% of your patients are going to have at least one risk factor, which will require baby aspirin. So some people have said, well, why don't we just give everybody baby aspirin with their prenatal vitamins? And, you know, there have been attempts at making a super pill, which is prenatal vitamins plus baby aspirin. If uh, anybody in the audience is in Europe or Britain, uh, the studies that were done there were done with a greater doses. So uh, with 150 milligrams of aspirin or in this country, it would be 162 because it'd be two baby aspirins and uh, suggesting that the higher dose is more protective. The, the, the data on that is a little murky, but the American College of OBGYN and United States Preventative Task Force reviewed all the literature and concluded that 81 milligrams is the ideal. Okay. And so, um, in fact, as we speak, California, the CMQCC uh, has put together a task force on low-dose aspirin because we think that it's a very important uh, intervention to prevent patients from developing preeclampsia who've had it before, but also seems to decrease the risk of preterm birth, spontaneous preterm birth, because preeclampsia and spontaneous preterm birth may have a very similar origin, the placenta, the damaged placenta.
1: Right. So, I mean, you've outlaid the strong benefits of uh, baby aspirin. Yes. Um, She was worried about postpartum hemorrhage. Are you aware of any higher risk of postpartum hemorrhage with baby aspirin?
0: Very uncommon. Great. Yeah, I, that, that would not be a risk that I would be concerned about. Okay. In general. remember baby aspirin or aspirin isn't mainly works on is antiplatelet is what it's used for cardiovascular disease. Okay in Pregnancy, the, one of the things that aspirin does uh, in patients who are destined to develop preeclampsia is remember I spoke about your blood vessels being too constricted. You did? And it could be dilated versus yes. constricted. So there are two substances that lead to this imbalance. One's called thromboxane, which is a vasoconstrictor. And the other is called prostacycline, which is a vasodilator. And in normal pregnancy, you have more prostacycline produced to keep those vessels open and less thromboxane. You still need it because you still need to have differential blood type to your organs depending on what you're doing. So mm-hmm. you know, even if you're pregnant, in patients destined to develop preeclampsia or develop preeclampsia, that ratio is reversed. You have more thromboxane causing vasoconstriction and less prostacycline. If you give them baby aspirin, it makes that ratio go back to normal. I see. So I that see. is one of the other really important actions of baby aspirin, which is amazing to think about it. The simple little pill of a over-the-counter medication has got such profound metabolic effects, but it does. Mm. And it's used extensively in cardiovascular disease.
1: Right. Useful to know. Uh, I'm glad and uh, very useful knowledge. Thank you for all of that. Just to um, finalize a few things here. Are there any places you think a pregnant woman uh, or an educator can go to get information uh, or resources. You mentioned the preeclampsia foundation, um, you know, for, for the average person who um, is not as uh, medically oriented. Any places you can suggest?
0: Well, I think the preeclampsia foundation is, is uh, I would, uh, by the way, I have no financial or any other interest in Preclampsia foundation. Sure. I happen to know the, the founder very well, but it is an incredibly good organization because it's made up of people who have survived the most extreme forms of this disease. Uh, Eleni Tsigas, who is the, the founder of this organization, she herself, has been a survivor. And everybody in that organization have got personal knowledge of what this disease can do and are dedicated to making things better. So they have a lot of resources, and most of it is focused on educating the public. So I think that's a very, very good resource. The other resources that are available are uh, through the CMQCC, because that toolkit All those toolkits can be downloaded by anybody. You just have to register so we know how many people there are. It may be a little dense for non-medical people to uh, wade through, but there's certainly uh, lots of little uh, nuggets in that which people can take away. Yep. Um, And the American College of OBGYN has got an extensive patient education arm, which is available to the public. Um, I don't exactly know how you access those, but those clearly come, usually come through the medical offices, the physicians or midwives. And so those are also very good resources. And most of the patient information materials are very well written, very clear and and very simplified so that patients can just look at them and and make the decision. So there's lots of resources available for anybody to access and, Again, if in doubt, talk to your provider.
1: That's really useful. I've learned so much today. I've learned about twitchy blood vessels. I've learned about uh, lightning. uh, If in doubt, get the baby out and a lot of those other things. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
0: Well, I I, I just wanted to emphasize again the importance of the postpartum period, particularly that first week, and that patients be aware of their symptoms and, you know, make sure that, that their healthcare providers are hearing from them. Um, I want healthcare providers to make sure that they are listening to their patients. It's not easy to, do, to set normal versus abnormal, but we must listen to our patients. And if in doubt, bring them in. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. If in doubt, don't send them out, bring them back in and reevaluate patients because this is a dynamic disease. It's not static. So if they, if they in one place now, Oh, I'm 140 over 90 and I've got a little bit of a headache they can be 160 over 110 with severe headache and liver involvement 4 hours from now mm-hmm. so it's not a static disease it is a progressive often progressive disease and then finally i think that the long term cardiovascular effects are important for patients to understand and for providers to understand that pregnancy is a window into future cardiovascular health and therefore primary care physicians Internists, family practitioners need to look back, take a good history, and if a patient has had a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy, they need to put them into a cardiac surveillance protocol that allows them to maximize the patient's cardiac health so they can have a long and healthy life.
1: Right. I love the way you phrase that, a window into their long-term health. Uh, I've learned tons from you today, Maury, and I can see why you were Professor of the Year. You explain things in a wonderful way at various different levels. So thank you for joining us today. It's been great to have you.
0: Thank you so much, and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you.
1: Okay. Uh, Thanks, everybody out there for listening to the podcast today. Please go to our website, Lamaze.org, to learn more about Lamaze, how to connect with a childbirth educator and class, and and there's many other resources related to pregnancy, childbirth, and parenthood there. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Lamaze podcast and give us a a good review, I hope. (laughs) Uh, This will help other families find us in the podcast world. We're looking forward to you tuning in next time. For today, I've been your host, Mindy Cockrum.